0: the podcast of Amago Day Community, where we're convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday's service as we look to the scriptures seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. We are in a series called Your Questions About the Bible, and essentially we're Um, looking at, we took in hundreds and hundreds of your questions and then compiled them and that created the series. So these are the questions that we're answering. And today we're addressing the issue of homosexuality, which is a question that a lot of you had in terms of how do I make sense of scripture and what I know about myself or my culture, my friends. And so that's what we're going to address today. Um, A few months ago, I had sort of the privilege for a few of us pastors to meet with, uh, the, the gay leaders of Portland, uh, who were leading specific, uh, initiatives in their own community. And two things in that conversation that I found sort of shocking and, and very much woke me up. One was a middle-aged woman who mentioned that the worst thing she had ever heard about herself came from behind the pulpit. As I listened to that and thought about what I do week in and week out, it was it was definitely sort of like um, a, a shocking reminder about the power of standing up uh, every week, saying that this is what God says. The second thing that, that I found sort of shocking was that as we went into the conversation, I sort of let out with saying we we as the church need to repent for misrepresenting the love of Christ to your community. And when we finished, Sam Adams said, essentially, I never thought I'd hear that ever come out of a pastor's mouth. And the fact that he would never expect to hear an apology for the ways in which the church has mistreated the homosexual community was shocking to me as well. And So as we enter into this conversation today, uh, I understand that this is a difficult topic for some of you who who uh, have gay neighbors, friends, loved ones. For those of you who are gay, you are listening to this in this context, and and what we're trying to do week in and week out is say how do we how do we understand this text, which. We believe to be the inspired word of God. It's handed down to us through uh, thousands of years of the church. And we find that there's moments where it it, it sort of clashes with what we understand culturally. We don't want to hurt anyone. Um, if your self-understanding is that you're a homosexual or uh have loved ones, relatives, neighbors, then I know this is an extremely difficult topic for you because it relates to how do we follow Jesus and it relates to uh, the love of God. And if you, like most of us, know and love people who are gay, then it's difficult for you as well. And so what I want to try to do today is just give clarity on what Scripture says and wrestle with how do we, how do we live out the whole Scripture? Um, how, do we, how do we live into this? And how do we do that as a faithful witness of Jesus that would treat people like Jesus would treat them? Now before we get into it, I want to, we, we have to acknowledge that the church has no moral authority... Uh, in and of itself, we have no moral high ground on on this issue. The first of all, like I said, we have misrepresented the love of God in, in numerous ways. There are countless young people who grew up hearing that, that their particular sexual orientation was the lowest form of sinfulness, that God didn't love them, and they may never find their way back into a community of faith. Secondly, we understand that we've proven through countless statistics, whether it's on premarital sex or adultery or divorce, that we are in no place to judge based on our own merit and goodness. Right? So we have no moral high ground on this issue. But we have this inspired Word of God speaking into a culture and it's confronting some things and those are the things we have to wrestle with. So turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We're not going to hit every place that the Bible addresses homosexuality. But I do hope to give sort of a larger um, perspective on how the gospel addresses not just homosexuality but all of us in our sexual orientations. And so Romans 1, we'll pick up in verse 18. This is Paul writing to the church of Rome, and he's, he's unfolding his gospel of God, his theology of the gospel. And he starts with humanity's rejection of God and God's judgment of humanity. For all they, though they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And all they, though they claimed to be wise and became fools, they exchanged the glory of an immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts, The sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this God gave them over to shameful lust, even Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty of their error. Furthermore, just as people did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to depraved minds so that they do what ought not to be done. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossip, slanderers, God-haters. Insolent, arrogant, and boastful, they invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. Now, if you go to 1 John chapter 4 verse 7, you could just listen to me read this verse, but it says, "Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love." We also know that Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. So how do we understand passages like Romans 1 in light of passages like 1 John 4? And why would a loving God call homosexual behavior sin? So that's what we're trying to wrap our minds around. Now, cultural confrontation, first of all, is not unique to us. This isn't sort of a a new modern reality that the Bible would confront something in our culture. So if you were to go to another culture like the Middle East that might agree with what the Bible teaches in terms of sexual ethics, but they would probably have issues with the pray for those who persecute you and love your enemy. And so every culture... Uh, the, the gospel and the scriptures are gonna confront different things about a culture, whether it be polygamy or something else. And so cultural confrontation is not a new thing. The other thing is to recognize that Paul would have known that both in Rome and in Corinth, that, that homosexuality was a normative practice. So in Rome and in Corinth, um, you have... Uh, homosexual relationships that are not just master-slave kind of abuses, but there are consensual relationships uh, f- through with adults. And so it's really only the very wealthy who could afford at that time a private life that was secretive. Everybody else sort of had to live their life out in the public square. And so we have to understand this passage that Paul's writing into a culture where it would have been confronting that culture as well. And how are we to understand this passage in light of what appears to be be or becoming normal in our culture in relationship to sexuality? So let's look at Romans one twenty one, Where this starts for us, I think we have to understand that it says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile. So, so when Paul is writing this, he's saying, so, so here's how all of creation falls into this state that he, he describes here in Romans 1. And it begins with a knowledge of God that refuses to worship or give thanks to him. That, that this is the core issue for all of humanity And if you find yourself in a place, just think about, with a God who is creator, who says, I give you the gift of life. I give you the gift of creation. I call you into being. I sustain you by my spirit. Like, all of that is gift of a generous God. And our response to him in terms of how will we as creation be fulfilled by our creator, it is through worship and thankfulness. That's what we we're made to be in this relationship, in this communion. But when we refuse to do that, when we reject God and are no longer thankful or grateful, then we kind of turn towards self. We turn towards creation. We turn towards others. So you try that this week. Try taking every day and just going, today I'm gonna thank God for at least 10 things, right? Seems very minimal. And, and what you'll find is your heart, your perspective, everything will have to change. You will have to recognize life as gift, your relationships are gift, your job's gift, your community, your culture, the creation around you, all of it's gift, and you'll find yourself taking on this right relationship with God because we were made to live under his grace and his gifts with thankfulness. When that doesn't happen, so when we lose that sense of worship and thankfulness, then we turn in towards ourselves. And so what Paul describes here in verse 21 is, their thinking becomes futile and their foolish hearts become darkened. This is all of humanity when we move away from a grateful worship of God, we then move into finding our freedom and our fulfillment in creation in whatever way we can kind of go after it. What is interesting for us in our cultural moment that sexual expression and sexual orientation are perhaps looked at as our hope and the place where we find fulfillment and freedom. So after the sexual revolution of the 60s where, uh, you know, all your parents were at Woodstock naked in the mud, um, then you have this, this understanding philosophically that anchors itself in the culture, which essentially says that sexual expression is the path to freedom and fulfillment. And in fact, if I can't express myself sexually as I want to or feel like I'm supposed to, then that actually is oppressive to me. And this would be true if you're single and you're saying, I'm going to stay single. I'm not going to get married because if I get married, I'm going to have to have sex with the same person for the rest of my life. And those of you who are married are going, Oh no, I'm married. I'm having sex with the same person for the rest of my life. And so you think about how could I get out? Because freedom and fulfillment is like if I could just express this the way I want to express it, I'll I'll be fulfilled. I'll be free. And if I can't, then then God's decrees over that are seen as oppressive. This would be in this would include homosexuality, but it would also include premarital sex, adultery, pornography, right? withholding sex from your spouse, all of that is included in sin. And we look at that and we go, well, God must be trying to oppress me. And so all of a sudden, a God that we were created to give thanks for, we now put on the witness stand and we judge him as the oppressor. Because... In what Paul calls feudal thinking, he won't allow or approve us to express ourselves sexually and find the freedom that we hope to have. We're trying to find freedom apart from him, but then we begin to say this is an issue of justice. N.T. Wright says it this way. He says, life and sexuality is always a gift of sheer and unmerited grace. So again, he's in this Romans 121 looking at God and saying this is a gift of unmerited grace, worship, and thankfulness. He says, the appeal to justice seriously misrepresents the notion of justice itself. Not just in the Christian tradition of Augustine, Aquinas, and others, but in the wider philosophical discussion from Aristotle to John Rawls, justice never means treating everybody the same way, but treating people appropriately, which involves making distinctions between different people in different situations. Justice has never meant the right to give active expression to any and every sexual desire. So... What Paul goes on to say in verse 22 then is that although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of an immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. And so God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for degrading of their bodies with one another. And they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served created things rather than Creator. So this is a description of idolatry. This is to say that rather than letting God be the ultimate thing that I worship and am thankful for, now I've rejected that God. This isn't talking about just homosexuals. This is all of us. This is all humanity. And in that rejection of God, I've now exchanged the truth of who he is for a lie I believe that freedom and fulfillment can be found in these other things, whether I worship people or things or stuff. Now, honestly, if you were to say, what would it take right now for you to go from this day forward, I will live my life in absolute freedom. Most of us would say we need enough money to get the stuff you want. We need enough sex or access to those perfect relationships, right, and I need enough power, money, sex, and power. Those are sort of the three major idols in a capitalistic culture like ours. And so what Paul is saying is that this exchange of what life really is about in communion with God has been exchanged for a lie that says life is about money, sex, and power, money, Uh, Or or life, it's about me finding my freedom through my sexual orientation or expression. And with um, this, it's almost like God says, you reject me, and now I'm going to reject you and give you a mirror. And you're going to either, you're going to exchange worship for me for a mirror that you look through. And whatever you see in there, be it yourself or the reflection of me through creation, those are the things that your heart's going to go after. So whether that's a person, whether that's sexuality, whether it's images on your computer screen, whether it's money or stuff or things, that's where the inward bentness now of creation moves away from worship, and is bent in on itself. And we define that as freedom, right? We define that as freedom. Let, my, let me express myself sexually whatever way I feel best, and God defines it as judgment. It is a sign when humanity bends in on itself, that an entire culture has walked away and rejected this God of worship and gratefulness. So, it is not saying that this, this Romans 1 is only uh, talking to homosexuals. Okay, because the church is really good at this. We're really good at, at, at pulling out the sins That we put way up here. And we say that's a big bad one. And then we have other sins that we put way down here. Those just happen to always be my sins. Right. (laughs) Mine are always the the not so bad ones. Yours are incredibly tragic. Um, And appalling. Right. And so what he's saying here is that this entire culture has gone this way. And one of the signs of it will be homosexuality becomes normative. So when he says even, quote unquote, even, the women exchange natural for unnatural, men exchange natural for unnatural. the, The reality is sex is gift. It's not God. And this is true again, no matter what your orientation would be. And when the sexual hope and freedom moves into homosexual expression as normative, it's a sign that the culture has created a false freedom. Not simply the people within the culture who see themselves as gay, but the, the entire culture. And so sexuality for our culture is seen as an ultimate thing, as opposed to a secondary thing. And why that is so off in terms of our inward bentness towards ourselves, it's because we have replaced God as the ultimate thing with these secondary things that have become ultimate things. And our sexuality is one of the top ones. Now, some of you would say, but this seems natural to me. Or when I speak with my friends or my siblings or whoever it would be, they would say this is their natural inclination. That's not what Paul's talking about here when he says exchange natural from unnatural. He, he's talking about design within creation. If he wasn't, then, then it was like every guy that wanted to commit adultery would say, well, that's natural or sexism or racism. Depending on the person would feel like natural to them but he's talking about something different here. He's talking about the loss of the knowledge of God leading to the way we think about freedom and life and hope that has become twisted Which means that we can have all that freedom and life and hope apart from God who is no longer a good God that wants to fulfill us through worship. He's actually an oppressive God who wants to take away all our fun and hope and freedom by putting these mean rules on us. Now a couple things need to be said. Um... First, like I mentioned, this is an entire culture, not just those who practice homosexuality. And secondly, that sexual desire is not the same thing as acting on it. So those of you who are here and you have same-sex attraction and you you have those thoughts and you're going, okay, that's me, that's me. The the truth is no matter what sexual sin we're talking about, the desire or temptation to do it is not the same thing as as the act itself. And so it's appropriate as as a community of faith that we can live honestly with those desires, talking about them, praying about them, and standing with each other so we can resist temptation. Paul is describing an inward bentness of all people who are seeking personal freedom apart from God. And that's what Romans 1 does. But when sex becomes the soul's hope, right, or people become the soul's hope, then we are in major danger of losing ourselves no matter what our sexual orientation is. So a man who puts his hope in his wife to be to fulfill everything in his life has put both her and him and his expectations in major jeopardy because she can't fulfill his soul. Only Christ can. The same would be true for anything that we ran after to make that ultimate thing. So Galatians 5, turn there with me. When Paul is describing what this inward bentness looks like in terms of seeking freedom away from God so that we can have what we want, he describes these things as acts of the flesh. And so in chapter 5, verse Nineteen. He has three categories. He has sexual freedom, spiritual freedom, and social freedom. And he says, this is what it looks like. So in verse 19, he says, These acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual or morality, impurity, and debauchery. That's sexual freedom, the first category. The second category is spiritual freedom. And he says, Idolatry and witchcraft, meaning I want the God that I make, I want a God I can control, I want to be God. And the third one is a social freedom, which essentially shows itself in hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so Paul's list, this sort of all-consuming list, says that this freedom... To be bent away from God and into ourselves manifests itself in these three ways. Sexual freedom, spiritual freedom away from God, and then social freedom that says, let me do whatever I want and don't get in my way. And in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Freedom from what? Freedom from the enslavement to self that says I can only find hope and fulfillment in myself or in other created things. And when Christ sets you free from running after these things of the flesh as your primary ultimates in life, then you're free to be in Christ, which is an identity issue identity, when we, we talk about freedom, we're talking about identity at the core. Like, do I have the freedom to be who I'm made to be? Which, when the culture places sexuality as the largest expression of self, then, as we see like from Romans 1, that, but the biblical understanding is that you bear God's image, that you are a man or a woman, We don't have to quantify that with an adjective before it. You're a man or you're a woman, and you're an image bearer of God. And you are not simply identified as your sexuality, right? Your, Your identity is not just your behaviors. So if we go to 1 Corinthians 6, this is the last passage I want us to look at. But this passage he is listing, this is one of the other passages that homosexuality is referenced. He says, Or do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And you have to admit. Like how we were able to lift homosexuality out of this list and not see everything else is amazing because greedy, like in America, like we're all in this list. And he says in verse 11, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the Lord Jesus Christ. It means that your primary identity Apart from all that you've done, all that you've worshipped and sort of been bent into, your primary identity is not that. It's not your sexuality. It's that you're a, a man or a woman who's been adopted by God. You're a son and a daughter of God. That's your primary identity. That is what some of you were. But now you're in Christ, which means The whole game's changed as to the core of your own personhood. It's a massive gospel declaration on all of you today who sit here and bear guilt and shame over behaviors or are confused about your own sexual orientation. It's it's a declaration of freedom, true freedom, not a freedom that comes from finding our hope in sexual expression, but a freedom that says you can come out of the closet in your faith community, you can wrestle with these things on a common journey because you're with a whole bunch of other people that are coming out of the closet about a whole bunch of other stuff and we have to be on this journey together. You're in Christ and that's irreducible. That's the name that names you above anything else. You're in Christ. It means that you can honestly seek to follow him and that you are much more than your sexual orientation. And so one of the questions that comes out of passages like this is, okay, does that mean that a homosexual goes to hell? In fact, if you have homosexual friends, I mean, when I speak with people that are gay, you know, the last thing you want to do is, hey, what do you do? For living, I'm like, oh, I'm a pastor. I'm like, Great. I, I want to say I'm a soul architect or I just want to make up some weird things. But inevitably, the first question is, oh, do you think I'm going to hell? Right? Because I'm gay. Do you think I'm going to hell? To which I want to just say like, do you think I'm like an arrogant jerk because I'm a pastor? Do you think I'm a bigoted jerk? And, and, and it's really important that we We change the conversation to little boxes like yes or no and acknowledge the complexity of the issue in the conversation. No one goes to hell for homosexuality or adultery or any other sin. You go to hell for self-righteousness, to believe that you didn't need Christ, to believe that you didn't need the gospel, And that could be a a religious self-righteousness that says, I get to go to heaven because I'm heterosexual. Like that's a self-righteousness that gets you sent to hell. But it can also be a non-religious self-righteousness that says, I'm okay the way I am and I don't need anybody else. And the gospel says both of those self-righteousness, those put you in danger. Because before Christ, the playing field is level all of us are in sin, all of us are desperate for Christ. In fact, one of the, the common denominator about all of you at Imago is that you're all screwed up. And, um, and I'm sort of the leader of that. And, and in fact, we were thinking about just putting that box on the membership covenant, are you screwed up? And, and people that say no, we'd be like, oh, I'm sorry, we can't accept your membership here. You, you won't fit in with us. The the truth is that the gospel levels this playing field That we all need Christ And when we admit that No matter what our sexual orientation is Christ is ready to receive you, forgive you Wash you, justify you, rename you And make that identity of being in Christ Your primary identity Not your behavior or your sexual orientation He'll set you free But to the extent that we want to fight him and reject him and refuse to sort of give thanks to him and see the greatness and gratefulness that he's given us, then we end up in a self-righteousness that I think leads to that enslavement, whether religious or irreligious. So the question is then, how do you love your gay friends and invite them to follow Jesus knowing that the Bible says that homosexuality, homosexual behavior is a sin. Well, here's, I mean, I don't have the, I haven't figured this out completely, but here's what I got. First, I think we need to share that we have a common story of trying to pursue freedom and life and love. And knowing that all of our stories are sort of imperfect and incomplete And we need to communicate that our understanding of Scripture, sexuality, spirituality is imperfect. That we continue to learn. And so being in those relationships where you can ask questions and listen. And they can ask questions of you. Those are invaluable for the journey. I think it's also important that when you talk about Jesus and inviting people to the hope of the gospel. You have to check your own heart. Recognizing that you have Plenty of sin, and if you think that you're better than this person, then you've kind of gone off of it. Stay in that pliable place where you realize that we all need grace. Our own sin in not loving people is really something you need to own with your gay friends. Our own sin is just a long list of sins. No better, no worse than any other sin in the Bible. I think you need to figure out how to be a compassionate friend that while you stand in truth and grace, you stand in love and you walk with them. And God has to give you a lot of discernment. The bigger question is how do you follow Jesus faithfully if you are gay? And I want to just recognize that this all happens in a context and, the, and, and all of our sexualities are formed in a context that is really complicated. So I, there's no simple or overly simple answers. But here's what I would say. There is a common journey. And, and there's a common journey where there's plenty of people at Amago who are trying to walk out their sexuality and be faithful to Christ with it. And plenty of people whose sexual orientation is is gay And they're trying to live this out. It's also a common journey that we're all here desperately in need of Christ. So what might be your struggle might not be their struggle, but they're all struggles. And, and we could try to, you know, say which one's worse. I wouldn't pretend to do that. I would simply say there's a common journey here of what it means to be faithful to Christ. The second thing I would say is that Jesus can be trusted, and he does love you right where you're at. And the gospel declares to you and all of us today that we can be fulfilled in Christ, that he alone is our hope. And anything that we try to put over that will ultimately disappoint us. So how do I do this? Well, here's the options as I see them. Be faithful to Christ with your sexuality. Which means that if you feel that you are a homosexual, then God calls you to live a life of singleness. Unless he somehow changes that in you and you find yourself attracted to the opposite sex, and then he would call you to live a faithful life in a heterosexual Marriage for life, this is as true for any single person in the room except this huge issue where God would be calling you to live a life of singleness doesn 't that mean that you will be lonely and I, I would say yeah you 're going to be lonely i I think you know ten years ago, if I preached this message i 'd try to come up with all the reasons why you wouldn't experience loneliness. But as, as most of you know, I have a disabled daughter who now is 20, and, and I watch her struggle with loneliness, and, and I walk with her in that loneliness, and I know that her life's gonna have a lot of loneliness in it. And somehow, in the midst of that, I trust that God's in the loneliness. Um, I don't know why she's that way, why he allowed that. Uh, I know that that's our, our gift to walk with her for the rest of our life. So all of us are gonna carry that around. So yes, I think you will be lonely. I find what I'm saying difficult to you. Uh, I can only reconcile this as a pastor by inviting you to a journey of trusting God with what you may consider the deepest needs of your life. And know that there are people who will walk with you in that, who will, are walking the same journey as you. And I understand that an issue like this, the Bible doesn't seem to give us a very satisfying answer. Um... I only can see three ways. You can either change what it says, which I've read all of, um, well, a lot of the arguments that say, well, why homosexuality is okay, and I I just don't think they're they're very well done. They're not dealing with the text well. So I want to have integrity to the text. I can reject the Bible. That's an option for you. Just say, I don't like it. I don't believe it. I'm not going to follow it. And the third one, I would say that, that you're in a place where you could trust that the whole of Scripture is true. And which means that there is a good God with good intentions for you behind his promises that say he loves you as you are. But as well as his commands that calls you to live a life that you don't understand. We're trying to make sense of what the Bible says in light of what we feel or what our culture tells us. And the truth is you're a man or a woman who's loved by God. You're made in his image and you are called to be fulfilled by your creator through a life of worship and communion and thankfulness. And so Jesus is the hope of your soul just like he's the hope of my soul, not our sexuality. Jesus is with us when we fail, when we doubt, when we fear, when we're lonely, and when we trust him. And he can be trusted. When Jesus talked about sexual immorality, he was very strong on clearly, he clearly taught that all sex outside a monogamous heterosexual marriage was sin. And yet, as strong as he was on that, he was the most compassionate individual towards people, towards prostitutes and adulterers and people who lived all kinds of lives. He had the most compassion on the broken. And, and, and so much so that he, he died for us. He went to the cross for us. He died for sinners like us. Jesus Christ lived a celibate life for 33 years as a single man who found fulfillment and hope of his life in relationship to the Father and was faithful to the Father in obedience, even in moments that he didn't perhaps understand, like in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's saying, if there's any other way than me going to the cross, take this cup from me. But yet at the same breath, he prays not, My will but your will be done. Even in that obedience that caused him to suffer, the result was he raised from the dead as our glorified king. And he bought you and I freedom from the mirror. Freedom from being bent inward. Freedom to stand up as sons and daughters of God. Not heterosexual sons and gay sons, but sons. Not lesbian daughters, and right? Daughters, sons and daughters. Free in Christ and free for this journey. And so I hope today that this doesn't make the list of some of the most hurtful things you've heard behind the pulpit. Uh, Imago is not anti-gay or anti-anybody. We are trying to faithfully live out Uh, integrity to this book and integrity to the the loving gospel of Christ in our culture. And, And that's what we're wrestling with and that's what we're working through and it's imperfect, but we stand on it and we try to live it out. And so today the invitation goes out not to those of you who are homosexual, but to everyone in this room. Have you found that freedom in Christ? Have you found that he is the ultimate hope? Or are you still hoping in finding fulfillment through your sexuality? I think that's a question we all have to wrestle with as we leave here today. But the promises, the promises that he is ready to be your hope. He's ready to be your hope. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning we come to you in um, in humility, God. We, we know that we don't understand everything. And then when we do understand things, we don't understand why. And we find ourselves in that tension today. And we pray that you would um, be with us by your spirit. And I pray that you would unleash us from from the type of thinking that has anchored itself in our culture, the, the promise that, that the culture gives us that we will find freedom in our sexuality, or in our money, or in other people or things, and that we find you to be oppressive. I pray, God, that you would turn our hearts away from that, and that we would be able to trust in the hope that it is for freedom that, that Christ, you've set us free, and that All people here today, no matter what their sexual orientation, would hear the hope of the gospel. They'd hear your love. And they'd hear an invitation to a deep, meaningful, fulfilling journey that will be difficult. And I pray you would make us a people of compassion and grace and empathy and truth and people who love like you love. We need you. We need your spirit to do that in us and for us and through us. And so we invite you, God, today to meet with us at this table. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you are interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, Please visit our website at www.amago-daycommunity.com